0: My guest today has a concept called data fitness. An idea of five concepts that help you know how far along your organization is to becoming a data driven nonprofit, but also so that you can understand where your weaknesses might be. And these five practices are having a clear impact or data driven strategy, two, strong habits for data collection, three, user-friendly data systems, four, data fluency, and five, a culture of learning. And what's interesting about all five of these is that you do not have to be a data scientist or a highly skilled data analyst to be able to accomplish them. These are things that every nonprofit can develop either by themselves or with a little bit of assistance from the outside. And my guest tells a great story about landscaping his own backyard and how similar that can be to us being able to to do an incredible amount in developing our own data cultures and our data infrastructure within our own organizations. And sometimes you just need someone who can give you a playbook or, in, in my guest's case, plan for his backyard. So I hope that you get a lot out of this We talk about all five of these aspects, and so the episode is a little bit longer than my other ones have been. But I think each of these is so important to understand. So let's get started with Data Fitness and Paul Collier of CoEffect. Hello, and welcome to Heart, Soul & Data, the podcast where we explore the human side of analytics to amplify the impact of nonprofits everywhere with me, your host, Alexandra Mannerings. I am thrilled today for our guest. I'm very excited to have him come share his incredible expertise on really helping nonprofits figure out how to make the most with the data that they have. So I am going to let Paul introduce himself.
1: Thanks so much, Alexandra. Hey everybody, Paul Collier here. I'm the founder of CoEffect, a nonprofit consulting firm based in Denver. So so what we do at CoEffect is essentially work with nonprofits and social enterprises that are pretty small uh, and help them leverage data to make a greater impact. So, uh, you know, we're often working with folks who just feel totally overwhelmed with uh, all the things that they could be doing around impact measurement. And so really, really like to help organizations filter through all that noise and get clarity on what are the few most essential things they could be doing around impact measurement, which is uh, what brings us to the podcast topic today around data fitness. Um, So super excited to be talking with you, Alexandra, about that and um, thanks again for having me. You know, it's gonna be a really fun conversation.
0: I agree, and one of the things that I love what you bring to it is this holistic view, right? It's not just about putting um, a policy in place or a piece of technology. You're really thinking about the health of the entire organization and how a good impact analysis strategy and execution and putting it into action is going to drive the success of the entire organization. Um, And yet one of the pieces that you have is this idea of data fitness. So we're gonna dive into that, but let's just start for most of us who haven't heard this term before, what is data fitness and why should we care about it?
1: Yeah, thanks. Uh, data fitness is something that I've come up with really in the last year to, to kind of describe what good data use practices look like for a smaller organization. So sort of the framework that encapsulates everything that I've done for the last five years as a consultant with nonprofits. Um, so, so there are sort of five elements of it. The first is having a clear impact strategy framework. So something that really describes your strategy for why you need to collect data, what change you're hoping to achieve. Then having second, strong habits for data collection and analysis. Uh, Third, having user-friendly data systems. Fourth, having a data fluent uh, team. And five, having a culture of learning at your organization. And my, my experience has been working with smaller teams that all of these things are really interdependent. So if you are really weak in one of those, it tends to sandbag or hold back the other four. Um, so you kind of need to build them in parallel and you don't need to go to the nth degree in any of them, but you need all of them to exist. So, um, you know, I really found this as a, a helpful tool in trying to kind of really sort of make your data practice approachable as a small team. And, and it really is, you know, it's not, um, something you should be intimidated by. Uh, and there are a few common starting places in that, that. So I know we'll get to talking about each of those elements in more depth in a second, but I found it to be a really um, helpful framework to think about the entire scope of how to use data well as a nonprofit.
0: And you're exactly right that any one of these points is necessary, but not sufficient by itself. You know, that totally. again, if you've got really great data collection, you know, but you have teams that doesn't... Just- might not necessarily understand how to best interpret or use the results of that data, then you're not gonna get the result that you want. On the other hand, you might have a really powerful culture of learning and people are raring and ready to go, but if the data aren't there, what are they gonna use to fuel that change? So I know that the beginning, as you said, that first step is this impact strategy framework, right? So I would love to talk about why is actually having an impact strategy so important? First, just, well, we'll do an impact analysis when we need to for a program.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I really think it's important that you have to begin with the end in mind. So if you can be really clear on what you're hoping to learn and the outcomes you're hoping your organization will achieve holistically, then you can back up from that and figure out what is the work plan we have to get there. But taking this sort of ad hoc program by program approach tends to be disjointed, it often will give um, your your team members a little bit of a sense of whiplash, like, why are we doing this thing now? And it it sort of uh, makes the whole conversation uh, something that feels as if it's requested by a funder as opposed to for ourselves. So if you think to yourself, we're going to create this strategy for our own organization to benefit us, it's a lot easier to get people on board with it and to see the importance. Um, And often I've see many small organizations be really reactive instead of proactive. And, and that's when the exercise tends to feel like a power grab by funders. So uh, my my whole sort of rationale for this is really to help organizations take that power unto themselves and, and really be intentional and proactive about how they're using data.
0: Um, There's so many good things in there. One, I agree with you completely. I think it might be good that funders are sort of driving this need, they, they recognize the need for it, but you're exactly right that if you're just doing what's requested by a funder for an impact analysis, the impact that that particular funder might want to see may not be perfectly in line with the thing that you wanna be tracking for your organization. And so starting at the top, starting with why do we exist? And then if you know why you exist as a nonprofit to make sure that those are then the impacts you're looking for across all your programs and also sometimes you can have you know with a particular program there might be dozens of impacts that you could look at and you don't want to be wasting your time measuring dozens and you also don't want to waste your time picking one that isn't really in line with why your organization is there and and people really are driven by a why so again that third point you know if, if having that strategy really can feed into that why no that's that is really really important.
1: Absolutely, yeah, no, and and creating a theory of change is not uh, rocket science. I've I've got a blog I can share that has sort of the step by step for an organization that that went through this process, um, and and really I've seen if you can get you know a team of three to six people together and. Have the meeting every week or every couple of weeks for a month or two, you can create your theory of change. And that can be a really helpful foundation. So, um, you know, having that document that describes what are our intended outcomes, what are our activities, who do we serve? That's the starting point. And then I find it really helpful for an organization to also have what I call a learning agenda. Essentially, a list of what are the questions that if we answered them, would help? us do our work better or make everything else not relevant. Um, and so working through that learning agenda is sort of a step that follows from creating your theory of change. And uh, your theory of change will also suggest, you know, what are a few key performance indicators that we need to really be tracking on a regular basis to understand are we day to day, week to week, week to week achieving what we intend to achieve? So, so those are the three parts of that, you know, sort of impact strategy from my point of view, and and again, they're not rocket science. You can make them um, on your own, really, uh, with you know just some team time and some dedicated effort. So, um, you know, don't want uh, anybody to really be too intimidated by these. Um, they're foundational, but also absolutely within the grasp of what uh, nonprofit professionals should be able to make happen.
0: And I mean, what I love here is that crafting the strategy, crafting the theory of change doesn't require anything that they don't already know. It may require a little bit of organization of those things and maybe some soul searching to figure out which ones matter the most, but you don't have to be a data scientist to create an impact strategy or a theory of change, right? Your, your idea of the, um, having a learning agenda those are the questions that bug you every day. Those are the things that you're struggling with that, that if you knew could help you do your job and run your organization better. And so you probably know what those questions are is if, if you gave yourself a little bit of time to write those down. So I love that, I love that, that you could take that time to just say, what are those questions that drive us? Why are we here? What are we trying to do? What are the impacts that are gonna move the needle the most on solving the problem for the reason that we, we exist?
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: And so, I, I think that anyone, any organization could do this theory of change. You know, if they they carve out that hour, I think once you have that direction, knowing, okay, here are the questions we want to answer. the The foundation that of answering those questions is actually getting the data, right? You do then actually have to start collecting something. Yep. Um, and that's where we get into your second step, right? Those strong habits for data collection. So what do you consider some of those key habits that are really important for any organization to have around data collection?
1: Yeah, and I feel like I'm gonna give a totally unsatisfactory answer of it depends because it looks different for every org and how you are benefiting your community. Um, What I would say is, you know, every organization needs to be collecting some data around uh, their outputs. So the scale of engagement with their community, and then their outcomes, so meaningful changes that community members uh, might see in themselves or or their lives based on working with your organization. So, I, I guess my answer is you need to be collecting some data, and the frequency of it, the method of it, that will really depend. Um, you you had uh, asked me in prep for this, you know, where are some common pitfalls around data collection, and I think one that I would mention here is. Um, you know, a lot of teams will think either only quantitative data, like surveys, or only qualitative data. But the but the real answer is generally both. And like, there's going to be some. There are going to be some elements of collecting stories, um, you know, testimonials, ad hoc commentary, and there's going to be something more more structured. Some some surveys or some observations. Um, so I think it really is sort of qualitative and quantitative that. Um, come together, uh, what that looks like, it really just depends you know, on your organization. But I guess if you're asking, am I doing enough? Um, you really wanna ask, are we collecting some data on outputs for all of our key programs? Are we collecting some data on outcomes for all of our key programs? And, and do we feel that the data is high quality? Um, if those things exist, you're doing all the right things.
0: And as you're saying the, the elements that need to be collected For an organization, should be driven by that strategy that you developed in step one, right? Don't collect information on questions that you didn't ask and that aren't present in your strategy, and do make sure that you're collecting all the information that you need to answer those questions that are on your learning agenda or on, you know, the outcomes that you've decided are critical to your organization.
1: Alexandra, that's crucial because uh, the the lack of intentionality. The well, I think this could be interesting. Let's just ask this. Is is sort of the the death spell of many um, data collection activities because they become overwhelming. So, so that's why having your theory of change, being really clear, you know, what are the outcomes? What are the learning questions that we are prioritizing right now mm-hmm. uh, as a starting point? And then always reflecting back against those and ruthlessly cutting any questions that don't align to those. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what you want to be doing in terms of developing good habits for data collection and analysis. Mm-hmm. If you're collecting too much data, it's hard to do any of it well. So the goal is, you know, fewer activities, but very strategic activities, very um, aligned with where you want to be going and what you want to be learning as a team.
0: Absolutely. And, and I think that you know, the habit of data collection, that phrasing is really important because one of the most critical parts of data is to make sure that it's consistent, right? Yes. Collecting some information now and then not collecting it later is gonna leave you with holes when you go back and try to do any kind of meaningful comparison or trends over time. And so making data collection a habit is really critical where you already know what it is, the elements as you were saying that you need. You've been ruthless about getting rid of the ones that you don't need so that you really can focus your energies and resources on the ones that are going to align with that strategy. Um, And then being consistent, just consistently doing it. And and part of the consistency is making sure that you keep doing it every day or every month or whatever the timeframe is, as you said, that fits your organization, but then doing it the same way, right? You're not constantly changing how you're collecting the data or the elements that you're collecting.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I will mention is that um, how often your data collection approach changes. In my experience, and Alexandra, I'm curious if you wanna comment on this too, but it sort of, uh, it relates to like how old is your program or your initiative, whatever you're doing to make change. And when a team is coming up with something new uh, generally, there's a fairly high frequency of adjusting and massaging how we're collecting data. Um, and as that, uh, that approach has become more consistent, we've been doing it for a few years, the frequency of change is less. So um, I, I say all this to say, uh, don't think that it can't change ever. Um, it will probably change a bit more in the beginning uh, and it will get more consistent over time. But simply being consistent, collecting some data is a starting point, and then trying to trying to keep things uh you know consistent or if they change have a good reason for that change um you know that that's that's to be expected and and totally fine you know as as a team
0: yeah, and I think sometimes a high level of change at the beginning can be if not prevented at least reduced by doing a um, more strategic planning yeah, of totally. what data is needed long-term. Like you said at the you know at the very beginning, you start at the end. So mm-hmm. put yourself in the shoes of having either finished this project, if it's one with a term limit, or with five years from now, when you're trying to look back at this, what are the answers that you're going to need? Again, in line with your strategy, what are those answers that you're going to need? And a lot of times you can make some pretty decent guesses as to which data elements that you need. But you're right, that sort of inevitably, inevitably as you get off the ground, you find out, oh, I didn't think about this. We're gonna need to be able to, to differentiate these two versions of the program. Now we need to make sure that we're collecting something that tells us which version of it we're doing or whatever it might be. Um, so yes, recognize that things will change, especially at the beginning. Um, and I would add to your, you know, make sure you have a good reason for your change. Make sure you document the change. Yeah, too. absolutely. Um, Make sure that you have it stored somewhere about the history of any given field so that when it comes to analysis time, you can make adjustments for that or considerations for it.
1: Yeah, you don't want gremlins in your historic data that that nobody knows about. (laughs) If you document changes to your data collection approach, it makes it so much easier for everybody who comes afterward to understand what happened and when and how does that impact, you know, the data that we're actually looking at.
0: Mm -hmm. And and I think this step can feel a little overwhelming to some people. And I think the plus side is there's so many incredible technologies out there now to support them. Some that are specific for nonprofits. You know whether you're collecting case management information because you you know you work in the health space um, or social work space, or whether it's you know tracking um, school interventions. There's even platforms specifically for school. And so I think that leads straight into your third step of these user friendly data systems. It's nice to know that we have technology that can kind of take the burden of some of this data collection off of us. But as you get out, the the best kind of software is one that's used. So how do you know if you've got a user-friendly data collection system?
1: Yeah, absolutely, great question. My rule of thumb is if if you look at your data system, you think this can do about 80% of the things that we really need it to do, that's pretty good. Uh, it's very rare for any one data system to do 100% of the things that a nonprofit team could possibly dream it, it could do for you. Um, it, it's really common within the nonprofit space for a team to have a few different Um, data collection and data management tools that are are part of the picture, especially if you're running different programs that take different shapes or forms. So I I think just asking, is our system doing 80% of the things that we'd like for it to do? Um, Do folks have any really major complaints about this tool? Answering those questions, and if the, the, the answer is yes, it's doing mostly what we need it to do, there aren't really any big complaints and you have a a system that is really good enough, you know, for your team. Um, The one thing I'll say is if you are a nonprofit organization where your specialty, your secret sauce is the technology, you want that technology to be stellar. I have a few organizations I work with that have an app and that's their whole thing. You need that app to be stellar. But for many organizations where the secret sauce of what you do is how you interact face-to-face or virtually with your community, the services you provide, uh, your your technology system needs to just not get in your way. Um, And it's okay for it to be really simple. It's okay for your data system to start with Google Forms, Google Sheets, Excel, and eventually you want to build up to having some kind of database that information is stored in a structured way. Um, I, I would suggest if you're a team just starting out Ask what your peer organizations do, because there are many, you know, hundreds of different database options for nonprofits, depending on the kind of programming you run. Um, Salesforce and Zoho are two common ones I see that are really flexible and adapt to many different kinds of organizations. But I would say first, really start talking with your peer organizations, figure out what tools they use, figure out what tools they like. If you are in this space of trying to decide what should our data systems be and, and really take it to the next level, because there are, there are a lot of options um, out there in general. but. Uh, often very few that meet the exact needs of your specific organization. So really talking with your peers helps you filter through and start identifying some of those.
0: And for organizations that maybe don't have the dedicated IT department, right? They might be kind of small.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Let's say they are reaching out there they're asking their peers, You know, how can they take the next steps to figure out how to actually improve their data systems?
1: Absolutely, that's um, a good point because so many data systems really don't depend on an IT person per se anymore. I think that, uh, you know, 15 years ago there was the server in the closet and you needed your IT person to make sure that server in the closet stayed running. Today, most, you know, data systems that help organizations collect, store and analyze uh, information on their impact are run on the cloud. Essentially there isn't a server that you have to own, you just pay an online subscription. So it really comes down to making a smart choice and figuring out who's gonna facilitate the process of choosing that. And then once you have a system, uh, you wanna identify some team member who's accountable for the ongoing sort of growth and feeding of that thing. And it doesn't have to be a technology person it just has to be somebody who uh, can keep tabs on the staff of what what's working what isn't where do we need to continue to grow and develop this thing and and somebody that um, can help really monitor and report on data quality Um, because as you know if bad data goes in it's going to be nothing of value coming out Um, garbage in garbage out so uh, quality consistent data entry is sort of the lifeblood of any data system, no matter what technology you pick. Um, so, just making sure that there's a team member who has time to support that—that's uh, really crucial. But it doesn't have to be an IT person. Again, these are uh, things that any person who's got maybe some inclination towards data or technology, even without formal training—you know—it's a role that you can play in a smaller nonprofit.
0: I think. What you're saying is going to resonate with a lot of people. So many of us really are afraid sometimes if we admit to ourselves of technology and say, well, that's not my strong suit. I don't have a background in that. I can't do this. And we sort of get this paralysis about moving forward. But, you know, as you would say, in the last five, 10 years, so many very user friendly, very tech light opportunities and tools have come along that really anyone who is is committed to that outcome can probably figure it out and and if not most of these companies come with support so you can identify a support person and maybe you pay a little bit more to get a dedicated support person who's going to help you troubleshoot the more technical sides of it but you don't have to have that skill in house
1: absolutely and I I will say too that many of the smaller nonprofits and social enterprises I work with well, just have an outsourced IT provider you know somebody that helps them set up email aliases somebody that makes sure that the right antivirus is on your on your computer and um, these folks don't have to be expensive but it's a very common way of engaging uh other professionals and it's a very sort of fractional uh fractional thing you maybe only get a few hours a month of this IT provider, but engage, engage with somebody like that is, is often a good step for a smaller organization. Um, and, and that person can also help, you know, sort of guide your decision-making process around these data systems that you, you don't need an IT specialist to, to really own or run. Um, so I think the nice thing about where we live and, ha- and how we work, you know, in 2021, is that, um, you know, so many technologies are accessible uh, you, you can sign up with you know just a few clicks. And even expertise like outsource IT folks are, are fairly easy to find and to contract with. And you don't have to hire a full-time person to get um, some, some expertise in a particular area on your team. And I, I think that goes for a lot of other areas. But I will mention for IT especially, um, if you feel like you've got some somebody, there are plenty of people that can serve this for you in an affordable and scalable fashion. I'm not one of those, but almost all of my clients have found that one person. Um, and and that can be really helpful in just minimizing some of your apprehension, I guess, around information technology.
0: No, I think that's huge. And one of our my earlier guests, Donna, from Deaconess Nurse Ministries, she talked about how you don't have to be an expert in everything and the things that you feel you need more expertise in, you can find someone who can help you yeah. with that. And and you said, you know, as so you talk about bringing fractional IT in, which I think is really important. And also, you mentioned how important it is to pick the right platform. And that can be a bit overwhelming, but there are people out there like you. Um, and Donna worked with somebody, and, and I help with this that can help you walk that path. You know, that you can bring somebody in who's familiar with the space, who's familiar with the options, can talk to you about what your needs are, and really help you get down to what are the requirements. And then help you find a platform that's going to meet most of those requirements.
1: Absolutely. And I think that uh, it, it reminds me almost of, you know, I, I did a lot of landscaping work during quarantine. Mm-hmm. Um, went to Home Depot all the time, buying rock, pouring cement, doing all of this manual labor. Uh, And the only way that I could have done that is because we, we hired a landscape designer and we paid this person a little amount of money to make the design choices for us. So I think that for folks who are in a small organization, it can be so helpful to identify areas like like this where there's a really important decision to be made. You want to go through an organized process, and you know hire somebody to make some of the help you make some of those design choices, help you figure out what the right system is, and then use your own time to implement and to move forward with that system. Um, but I think that that's a really um, really good use of time within uh, small nonprofit teams and. Um, will will help you you know get past this decision paralysis that uh, many teams often have when they're making big choices and honestly I had when I was doing my landscaping there's so many options <laughs> but if you can get somebody to make some of those choices yeah. for you or help you make those then uh, mm-hmm. it clears your path you know into taking the next steps on your own
0: yep and again it goes back to having that impact strategy because that'll help inform a lot of those decisions as well
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So we've gotten all the way to where we po- hopefully have really good data systems that are being fed by our really good data habits and data collection. And all of this is feeding into answering those questions that were put in place with our impact strategy framework. We get to the step number four now, which is data fluency. And I am very passionate on this topic, so I love that you have this as one of your things, because I think this is really important, but not everyone's familiar with the concept of data fluency. So for you, what does data fluency mean?
1: Yeah, so for me, data fluency really means having a working level of comfort using data. So being able to critically review a data product, that might be a graph, it might be a chart, it might be a full report, but being able to critically review something that has data in it, ask good questions about it, and and make reasonable decisions based on that information. So you don't need a degree in statistics necessarily. Um, you just need to have some uh, some baseline level of comfort and not be afraid of engaging with data. So I'm curious, uh, Alexandra, because you love this topic. Uh, what's your definition of data fluency? You know, what does this mean for you?
0: It's actually quite similar, and I've I've struggled a little bit with the label data fluency because I feel like to us fluency means you're completely in control and comfortable with every aspect of it. When we say fluent in a language, it means you can converse natively, right, in that tongue. And I feel like for us, none of us are going to be native data speakers. It doesn't come Mm -hmm. naturally to us the way the language does. And so I think you hit it exactly, which is it's being comfortable engaging in data products, being able to be critical. And you ask the questions of, is this working? Is this accurate? Is it? misleading right what might be missing from this and then be able to apply what you glean from that data product accurately and effectively into making a decision using it for me what what sometimes gets wrapped into data fluency that i kind of disagree with is the ability to produce those products yes i think you can be quote unquote data fluent like comfortable with data without being able to run a regression yourself um and, and I think this wraps into sort of the next thing of who should be data fluent, so to speak? Who should be comfortable working with data in your organization?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think everybody should be data fluent. And uh, especially because when we define it in this way, data fluency isn't being uh, the person who creates every single analysis. Right. It just is being a good consumer. It's being a uh, smart, responsible uh, consumer of information. and. Uh Having enough knowledge around data concepts to to be that good consumer, and so you know I think folks may hear the term data literacy and i I, I kind of use this interchangeably, but i you may have persuaded me that maybe data literacy is actually a better term because it sort of implies you know, working knowledge, I can read this thing, I can understand it, Um, I don't have to be necessarily the foremost expert in it. Um, It's helpful to have a person on your team who can produce data results, uh, who can do the analysis, can create your charts and graphs, but uh, it's, I think, on everybody else to be a responsible and thoughtful consumer of that information. That's the sort of data literacy or data fluency I think we're both talking about here.
0: Yes, absolutely. I agree with you. And I I I absolutely agree that everyone should be, you know, data literate. Um and I like to to compare it to you need to be able to ask, like, where's the restroom, where's the train station, and order off the menu.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Right. When we
0: talk about compare it to language fluency, right? You don't need to be able to read War and Peace and it's native Russian. You just need to be comfortable getting where you need to go using, using data. So how can you actually cultivate data fluency or data literacy? Yeah,
1: yeah. You know, some of the things that come to mind for me, first of all, just having a culture of asking questions and being curious, uh, especially about any, any sort of data product, like you want to be asking all of the questions that you just mentioned, you know, uh, what's the source of this information? Um, you know, how do we know that it's trustworthy? What do we think this means? Um, what are the implications for our next steps? So so I think just just having this mindset of uh, asking a lot of questions whenever you see something drafted with data, uh, chart, graph, report, infographic, whatever. Um, I think that that mindset is a really important mindset. Um, In terms of other ways to cultivate this, so uh, I think that there's a great opportunity to just sort of level set with your team and facilitate internal trainings around this when I was on staff at a nonprofit organization, I did this a few times and you know, every few months we would have uh, sort of a data lunch and learn. And it can be as easy as that talking about some of these concepts. Um, I, I can link in the show notes too, but I've got a, um, a data fluency handout that contains some really standard definitions for many things that um, are important concepts to know around data fluency. And I've made it editable because I think every organization in your mission area may have different language that's particularly important to understanding data. Um, so so you can actually go in there, uh, you know, edit, change, you know, and, and adapt it for your own team. But I think having some kind of resource around like what are some of the key terms that we need to have and really talking, talking as a team uh, about getting on the same page around, around data language. Um, That can even be a really helpful starting place, you know, to your point around, uh, where's the restroom is what time is the train arriving, there's probably a subset of, you know, uh, maybe 10 to 30 data literacy concepts that are really important for your team. Um, And knowing those makes somebody a much better data consumer, you just need to figure out what those are, you know, for your team and and create an onboarding or a training process for new team members to also have that knowledge um, learning from the folks who are already there.
0: I couldn't agree more on the, having that onboarding process. I think one, it shows that you're investing in your people. This is a skill that's a critical life skill, not just a critical work skill. And so you're letting people know from the get-go that you care about them and you care about um, helping them succeed everywhere, not just in your work. And I think it ties as well to your, data systems and your data collection and your strategy, that should be something that people know from the very mm-hmm. beginning, right? They should know how to handle your data systems. They should know how to put data in and they should know why you're doing it and where you're headed to from, from day one. Um, and I think that feeds right into our final point where all of this comes together into a culture of learning, a culture that you help share you know, from day one with people who join and something that you maintain throughout uh, the work that you do. So what does the culture of learning really look like at a successful organization?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, for me, it means that we are using data regularly and not just to confirm what we already believe, but to challenge our own assumptions. So I think that that's, that's sort of the biggest marker, you know, of a culture of learning. And I think you get there by having... Um, all team members with some baseline level of data fluency. And again, it's, um, it's, it's just knowing some of the key elements. It's not, not having all the skills to produce a data analysis, but just being a good consumer. So um, if everybody has that level of individual data literacy, uh, then you know you can come as long as you have habits of coming together as a team to use data to inform your decisions. Um, then I think that you've got a really good culture of learning in place, especially as a small team. Um, so so I mentioned you know using data to challenge your own assumptions. I think another marker I often look for is um, does your team have some budget to invest in data? Whether it's training to build a team skill set, whether you're working with consultants, whether you're investing in data systems just having some budget um, re- relative to the size of your organization uh, and really, you know, having this habit or uh, norm of reviewing data to make important decisions. Um, so, you know, if you're making an imp- a choice about some new program or programmatic expansion, uh, having a leader that's willing to say, okay, what does the data tell us about this? Um, that's another marker, I think, of culture of learning. And so it really does get back to, you know some leadership practices uh, and also some some habits of uh, just coming together and figuring out, you know, like how do we look at how do we look at data as a team and make sense of it as a team? Um, but, I, but I would say if you think back and you can say, oh, yes, we do all of those things, you've got a nice uh, culture of learning. It will grow with you as an organization. It's not, rocket science to do these things It's just really, um, you know, making space and also having uh, expectations that managers and leaders do incorporate data into their decision-making practices and uh, do ask, you know, questions like, what does the data say about this before they make important changes in the organization's direction?
0: Having that modeled, having your leadership ask those questions makes it easier for the folks at the bottom to then realize this is something that's valued and also to make sure that the resources are put towards it because right, if the CEO is asking for something, if the executive director is ac- asking for something, then those things tend to happen and, and get fed. If you're not the CEO or executive director, how can you do your piece of nurturing that
1: culture of learning? Absolutely. The first uh, thing is to just have data fluency for yourself or some some level of data literacy. and. Um, So I know that we'll be sharing some resources out after this that can help with that. But, you know, if you're not already uh, feeling like you're a comfortable sort of consumer and critical consumer of of data, you know, trying to build that skill set within yourself and looking for resources to educate yourself. So I think step one is, you know, your own data fluency. I think step two then is thinking about when you are working on a project, trying to be very clear, even for that project, how are we going to understand success? What data are we going to look at to know whether this is working or not? Um, you know, you may not be in charge of the project, but you could certainly ask questions and encourage your team that you're working collaboratively on to be very clear in terms of what does success mean and how, what data is going to help support our understanding of whether this thing was successful. So, um, so just sort of insisting on—I'm going to say—sort of good project management. Really, um, trying to be really clear about what are the results that we're aiming for, and how do we how do we see that, you know, within our data. I think that those are a couple things that you can um, you you can do at really any level of organization without um, having to be the CEO, you know, to to really guide the ship.
0: And I can say firsthand, I've I've watched projects. That have been thoughtful from the beginning about the data that they're going to collect and have used that data to show what parts of the program were successful and how much of an impact that has on the people looking at that program when they realize, wow, this program was really successful. And you know that because you collected the data from the beginning in a thoughtful, intentional manner to show that. Um, You know, I was part of a project that looked at a a pilot program for reducing the use of opioids in emergency departments. And it was just me and a couple of data team members um, and individuals from the participating hospitals who agreed to submit data from the beginning. And we were able to put together such a compelling argument for the success of this program, right? It caught the CEO's eye. You know, communications was all over it about being able to share it. And they went, wow, you knew this because of the data. And so I agree that yes, you don't have to be at the top to start showing how powerful and how helpful. Know, intentional data programs really can be.
1: Absolutely, and I think that your your story exemplifies, it's not just data for data sake. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about collecting data uh, to encourage good project management uh, and ultimately to help us understand is what we're doing working? Should it be? Should it be scaled up? Should we be doing more of it? And mm-hmm. it sounds like in the situation you're in, you were able to collect data from the start and helped you really understand. Oh yeah, we are making a meaningful impact here, mm-hmm. and uh, then it, and it feels good to be a part of a project that can get scaled, that's deserving to grow, that's deserving to scale. But um, if you don't have data that you're collecting from the start, it's going to be really hard to make that argument. So I think that there's um, there's there's uh, many reasons to want to have good data practices going on in your project team or within your organization. And it's not just for data, it's really for the impact and trying to understand what works, um, how can we do more of what works? How can we serve our community in the very best way? Um, so I, I, I love that example because it really sort of uh, ties this back into what are we doing here? you know? And it's not data for data sake, it's data for the mission. you know.
0: Absolutely, data for good. And I think Paul, we could talk an entire podcast about each one of these points. But if our listeners wanted to find out, you know, how fit their data was uh, for themselves, for their own organizations, where could they find out more about data fitness?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have a data fitness quiz on my website, which also sort of walks through each of these areas. And then it tells you at the end of it, you know, based on your score, like what are some of the right next steps? Um, so helps you learn a little bit more about all of this. It's coeffect.co slash data-fitness. Um, so, so you can go there or just go to coeffect.co and you'll see a tab at the very top that says Data Fitness and you can access it there as well. If anybody wants you to, I um, will make sure that my contact information is in the show notes. So if anybody wants to chat more about the things that we've talked about, um, by all means. But I really appreciate the chance to just get on here and talk about this. Obviously, we're both super passionate about this topic, and we think it can make a huge difference for other folks who are working in the nonprofit sector. So I'm um, super grateful for the opportunity to chat about things that I love, you know?
0: Well, we're very excited to have you. I think this has been an incredibly helpful conversation. I'm sure the listeners are going to agree, and I do hope that they all check out uh, the Data Fitness there. It's a great resource Uh, And I look forward to to future discussions and conversations about this. So thank you so much for joining us today, Paul.
1: Thank you so much, Alexandra. Really appreciate it. Take care.
0: You've been listening to heart, soul, and data. This podcast is brought to you by Miracinous, an analytics, education, consulting, and data services company dedicated to helping nonprofits amplify their impact through data. Learn more at Merakinos.com, M-E-R-A-K-I-N-O-S.com.